We have Brian Zahn. Thank you, Brian, for being here, and it's exciting to have you and to chat with you. Well, thank you for inviting me, Jason. Absolutely. Could you just introduce who you are and what you do and tell us just briefly a little about yeah, yourself? Yeah, I'm Brian Zond. I am the lead pastor at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri, and I've been doing that for 34 years. I'm 56 years old, so if you do the math, I started quite young. Uh, grew up in the Jesus movement. That's really where I encountered Christ as a teenager and really was pastoring uh, really even before the church began. So I tell people I've been a pastor longer than I've been an adult, and that really is the truth. And so I'm a pastor and have pastored one local congregation for 34 years. I also write books, and uh, that that about sums it up right there. Excellent. Well, um, we're we're talking about peacemaking and about what it means to be— a peacemaker and to be a nonviolent follower of Jesus. And your book, A Farewell to Mars, really, uh, really nails this topic and really addresses in some pretty, I think, profound and amazing ways and really challenges Christians to be people, to be followers of Jesus in a peaceful way. And uh, could you just say a little bit about the book and then we'll, we'll tackle a little bit of what you've written? Yeah, that well, the the way you uh, describe it, whether it lives up to that or not, it certainly was my intent. I had known for some time that eventually I would write my peace book, and I kept telling my wife, I said, I'll wait till I'm older and have less to lose. Uh, but then, then my grandchildren came along, and I just thought, you know, uh, I, I'm going to really put it out there what I. What I feel that the Lord has shown me concerning the peaceable nature of the kingdom of Christ, knowing that the moment you do that, if you pastor within an empire, and America is an empire, by the way, I define empires as rich and powerful nations who think they have a divine right to rule other nations and a manifest destiny to shape history. This claim of empire or this description of empire is by no means unique to the United States. Uh, throughout the history of Christendom, you've had these attempts of um, Christ- at Christian empire, you know, Rome, sure. France, Britain, Germany, Italy, Russia, etc. Um, the problem God has with empire is that what empires claim for themselves is what God claims for his son, Jesus Christ. And so I knew that when I presented the kingdom of Christ as peaceable and that the waging of war is incompatible with following Christ, that that would probably uh, generate controversy. Now, to be honest, Jason, I have actually been surprised that it hasn't generated more controversy. Yeah. Uh, the people that tend to react very vehemently against A Farewell to Mars tend to be those who haven't read it. <laughs> they, they assume something and they then attack it. But those who have read it, even if I don't fully persuade them, they tend to have a very respectful tone and demeanor when we uh, discuss the book. Sure. Well, I, I, myself in reading the book, I was actually surprised in how far the book went. And, um, you know, I was really from the top kind of expecting a uh, just sort of an explanation of the, the nonviolent ethic of Jesus. But I think what you've really done is challenged us in 
the entirety of our theology and not just to rethink what Jesus is all about or what our response maybe to war or to conflict should be, but what our response to so many issues in the Christian life should be. Can you say a little bit about that? Well, I would say my attempt was to write a a theological book that doesn't feel like a theological book. Sure. I mean, I think it is undergirded with a lot of substantive theology, but it doesn't read like an academic theological work. I'm certainly influenced by people like Stanley Hirewas and Rene Girard, and if people are familiar with those theologians, um, then they will recognize their presence in what I'm doing. But I'm writing it for, you know, the truck driver yeah. that uh, is willing to rethink some things in the light of Christ. And so, yeah, I, I would say it is a... Uh, it is a theological book, no doubt about that. So what are some of those things that, that you would say we need to, to rethink in light of being people of peace rather than maybe what the traditional evangelical church has been for the last 50 years or maybe for the last 2,000 years? Yeah, well, maybe the last 1,700 years would be a nice number to use. And by that I mean... Uh, For the first 300 years, the church really did operate as a radical alternative society. And then after the conversion of Constantine and the uh, Edict of Milan, etc., and the church ends up, perhaps perhaps unwittingly, it's, it's, it's a complex story, but the church ends up as chaplain to empire. That kind of changed everything. I think what we have to hold before us is how intensely political the message of Jesus is, and yet it's political in a way that no one else imagines, or the way in a way that no one has imagined apart from Christ. Uh, Jesus' entire ministry was an announcement and an enactment of the kingdom of God. The problem with that term kingdom of God is that kingdom is now an archaic term. We don't really use that term anymore. So let's think in terms of the kingdom of God, meaning the government of God, the politics of God, the reign and rule of God. And everything Jesus did was toward the end of either announcing or enacting and, and eventually establishing an alternative politics, that is an alternative society Uh, built around him and expressed through love and forgiveness. Jesus had every opportunity to be what people wanted him to be and expected him to be, and that was a violent, revolutionary Messiah after the model of David and Judah Maccabeus, who, who was a seminal figure in Jewish history about a century and a half before Jesus, who led the revolt against uh, the Syrian occupation, the Greek-Syrian occupation at that time, and that sort of gave them a a prototype for what Messiah would be. And I would say Jesus not only had every opportunity to be a violent Messiah, he faced every temptation to be a violent Messiah. I I think it's clear in Scripture that Jesus was tempted toward that. I think that's the essence of the third temptation, uh, where 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 we're told in Matthew 4 and Luke 4 that Satan comes to Jesus and offers him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory, if he will but bow down and worship him. And I think we need to maybe take a little more sophisticated approach to that and not think that 
you know, I mean, how, how did Satan come to Jesus? Well, I think Satan came to Jesus the same way Satan comes to us, uh, disguised as our own thoughts. And as Jesus is contemplating how he's going to establish the kingdom of God, there is this temptation to do it through violent revolution. But Jesus recognizes that for what it is, that that is a capitulation to the power of the Satan that he rejects. And he remains faithful to the way of the Father all the way to the cross. So that the cross, in fact, is the coronation of Christ. The cross is his throne. His crown is made of thorns. His scepter is a reed. The acclaim is done in the, in the form of mockery. And yet, ironically, it is a true coronation of the world's true king. The principalities and powers conspired against Christ. They condemned him in their so-called wisdom and justice. They sentenced him to death, and he was crucified, was buried, but on the third day, the father overthrew the verdicts of these lower courts, vindicated his son in resurrection, and now has exalted him or promoted him to his right hand where he now reigns and rules as Lord over his peaceable kingdom. And the call of the church is to embody that reality here and now. But since Constantine, we've gotten an awful long way from that. And what we end up doing is supposing that mostly this is a very private and post-mortem matter, that really what Jesus was doing was just handing out tickets to heaven so that we could go to heaven when we die. In the meantime, we'll run the world as we please. And what, in, what ends up happening is Jesus is thus essentially demoted from being actually Lord, which is another political term, uh, from being actually Lord to being the Secretary of Afterlife Affairs. Yeah. And so what I'm calling people to do is to recognize the reality of the kingdom of God and that the church is called to embody that reality here and now and that one of the primary aspects of that kingdom is its radical commitment to peace. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I think of is so often if when I have brought up issues of Jesus' example or teaching to be people of peace, people who turn the other cheek and love the enemy, someone inevitably brings up, well, Jesus formed a whip and whipped people and drove them out of the temple. Um, and that seems to always be our story that justifies a violent Jesus. Jason, I have heard that. Yeah. I don't know how many times I've heard that. So what, uh, what, what would you say? What do you say to that? Here's what I would say. I'm going to say a couple of things. First of all, the only mention of the whip in the cleansing of the temple, we call it cleansing of the temple. What it was was a prophetic protest of the temple that in an emulation of what Jeremiah had done uh, centuries earlier. And it was it was it was related to Jesus prediction that we were coming to the end of the temple age and the temple establishment and the temple hierarchy. But the only account that mentions the whip is John's account. And John is also the only one who mentions the cattle. And so the uh, whip was for the cattle, not for the people. Or as Stanley Hirawasa said, well, in any case, it's sure a long way from Hiroshima. You know, the idea that, that sure. Jesus uses a whip in a temple to then, um, I mean, now we, and we use that to justify war. That's quite a leap. I've, I've got a, I just so happen to have, if I can find it right here, I think I have it right here in front of me if I can find it. Uh, you know, this is, it's always kind of a polemic anytime you bring up Hitler. 
so I'm not trying to do that, but I want to read a quote from Hitler uh, from Mein Kampf. So this is not just some, you know, Internet concocted thing. This is right out of his uh, seminal work, Mein Kampf. Adolf Hitler says, quote, my feelings as a Christian draw me to my Lord and Savior as a fighter. I am drawn to the man who, standing alone with only a few followers, recognized these Jews for what they were and summoned men to fight against them and who, God's truth, was the greatest, not as a sufferer, but as a fighter. In boundless love as a Christian and as a man, I read through the passage which tells us how the Lord, at last, rose in his might and took up the scourge to drive out of the temple this brood of vipers and adders. How terrific was his fight for the world against the Jewish poison. Today, after 2,000 years, with deepest emotion, I recognize more profoundly than ever the fact that it was for this that he had to shed his blood upon the cross. As a Christian, I have no duty to allow myself to be cheated, but I have the duty to be a fighter for truth and justice. So, you know, it it may not completely be a fair argument, but I just want to say those that rush to... Um, the cleansing of the temple story to justify all manner of violence might find themselves in some unsavory company. Sure, it. Um, I've been reading some Bonhoeffer stuff and just, um, you know, seeing the the religion that emerged in Germany during that time is so con. I mean, just those those words remind me so much of, um reading about what was emerging in Germany and it's so contrary to what we see in a Jesus who is Prince of Peace um, and who is exemplifying laying his life down. Right. You know, when I talk about the peaceable kingdom of Christ, uh, Hitler is very often brought up in the form of, yeah, well, what about Hitler? What should we have done there? And that's a complex issue, I grant, but my my first reply is always this. Look, you have drugged me into the middle of the story. You've just thrown me into, you know, it's 1940, and what are we supposed to do about Hitler? Mm. Okay, that may be a fair discussion to have at some point, but let's back up and ask a prior question. How is it that uh, that arguably the most Christian nation on the face of the earth the home of the Protestant Reformation, etc., a, a theologically sophisticated people could could be so taken in by Hitler. I mean, let's yeah. keep in mind that Hitler waged his blitzkrieg with baptized soldiers. So what had gone so terribly wrong that a Christian nation could participate in Hitler's agenda? That's the first question to ask, and I think that puts us back on track to talk about what happened post-Constantine when the church ends up becoming a chaplain to the state rather than being the radical alternative society of the kingdom of God. Yeah, yeah amazing what you know I, I think that your background is probably similar to mine and just coming from conservative evangelical church and um, but wanting to follow Jesus in different ways and a lot of the folks who I know and who I interact with regularly um, would would at least be hesitant um, and and may push back pretty aggressively on 
seeing and understanding Jesus and the Christian life to mean <clears throat> that we unconditionally love our enemies, even if that means another nation or a person who wants to kill us. Um, what would you say to the person who maybe is struggling with that, who has come from that kind of background that that really embraces uh, violence to some extent, and um, or uh, a nationalistic Christianity? What what would you say to that person who is sort of maybe struggling with that, or maybe kind of on the fence? Yeah, sometimes people will say, well, it's all good and well for me to make assertions that Jesus taught us to love our enemies when I'm, you know, living safely and peaceably uh, in the United States. But I hasten to remind people that that was not the context in which Jesus was saying, love your enemies. Yeah. Jesus belonged to an oppressed people who were occupied by a very violent occupying force, the Roman Empire. And so, and and, you know, Jesus would eventually be tortured and, and executed by this empire. And so Jesus is not naive. He understands um, the challenge of it, but he calls us to follow him. Remember, the cross is not something Jesus merely does for us. I understand that there is a unique aspect to his death and resurrection, but Jesus very clearly says, now take up your cross and follow me. And to take up the cross is to lay down the sword. Now, it doesn't mean that we are passive. And, it, and I always make the point I'm not a pacifist. Uh, now, the, the, now, passivism and being passive, are, are the, the two words aren't actually even related. I mean, it's, it's P-A-C-I, you know, right. pacifist, and then P-A-S-S. But they sound so much like that's a problem. But I also say, look, I'm not a pacifist because pacifism is an ethical position on violence that one can adopt apart from Jesus Christ, as many have. Uh, what I am is a Christian, and I allow Jesus to inform me on the subject of violence. And I see Jesus in the midst of a violent world consistently participating in nonviolent resistance. Jesus is never passive, P-A-S-S-I-V. He's never passive. Mm, yeah. He's provocative, but in a nonviolent way. And so, uh, and, if, and in fact, you can make the argument that eventually uh, the kingdom of Christ does uh, overcome the Roman Empire, but in a radically different, nonviolent way. And so we have to be patient. Uh, Stanley Hirewas says, War is impatience. And it is. And uh, we always think we can take a shortcut, uh, that violence is a shortcut, but violence inevitably boomerangs back upon us. And the, the way of following Jesus is the way of radically trusting the Father. Uh, so we abandon certain outcomes and we trust the Father. And e either either resurrection is real or we're on a fool's errand to begin with. And so following Jesus is, in fact, a call to radical discipleship. You mentioned Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer is the one that gives us the wonderful phrase, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Because the kingdom of God is without coercion. We persuade by witness, spirit, reason, love, rhetoric, and if need be, martyrdom, but never by violent force. 
violent force has been abandoned by those who seek to follow the Prince of Peace, and the Sermon on the Mount makes that quite clear, and the early church fathers made it clear as well. Yeah. So what would you what would you say, uh, or what is what do we do? What what do we do to be people who are peacemakers or who are living in a nonviolent way? You know, I don't I don't know what we do. I, I mean, what I'm simply attempting to do is to untangle the primarily evangelical church because that's largely my audience, although that seems to be changing these days. But certainly the people that I'm talking to in A Farewell to Mars are, by and large, American evangelicals, and I am, I am attempting to show them the kingdom in the hopes that they can untangle themselves from this idolatrous allegiance to nationalism, militarism, violence, guns, and war. And if Christians can just begin to see the kingdom and the peaceable nature of it, then I think it will begin to be worked out in their life in all kinds of ways. In, in, nothing, if, in no other way, simply in the way they talk about the kingdom. And they understand that, um, that, that Christian participation in war necessarily requires us to abandon the call to discipleship. That's a very radical statement. I understand that. But if Christians can simply begin to think that way, think about what, what if the entire, and I understand this is a dream, but what if the entire church in America said no to war? Hmm. It would change things in such an enormous and radical and powerful way. And so how long will it take us to reach that point? I don't know, but I, I'm, I'm willing to simply be a voice. And I pray day by day, Lord, help me to be a voice, drawing your church in America away from its entanglement with nationalism, militarism, violence, guns, and war. And so that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm simply I'm, – I'm not trying to raise up activists. I'm trying to produce disciples of Jesus who at least begin to view violence in, an, in the light of Christ. Do you think that one of the difficulties is – that so many of the people who have been outspoken about um, peace or the rejection of war are people outside of Christianity. Yeah, I, I, I think it is a problem. And I think, um, you know, in certain evangelical circles, we've arrived at the place where instead of blessed are the peacemakers, it's suspicious are the peacemakers. Yeah. And uh, that just shows us how strange things have become. And I, I think we're, we're simply trying to recover from Christendom because Christendom was inherently violent. And by Christendom, I mean the marriage of Christianity with violent empire or, or Christianity sustained and supported by violent empire or maybe more accurately uh, violent empire using Christianity for its own agenda. Yeah. Uh, so that we need we need to get away from that, and um, yeah. So I, I do think it is a problem that that most of the most notable uh, peacemakers probably are not um, intentionally or or outwardly or confessing Christians. Yeah, but I, that just, I thought, that simply needs to change. It simply needs to change. Yeah, I, I thought it was very interesting in in your book the part where you talk about Eisenhower. And and his speech and the fact that Christians did not rally around those ideas. Yeah. Um, but 
essentially did the opposite. Yeah. Well, um, I, I thank you for uh, for talking with me today. Um, if if folks are interested in the book or in hearing other sermons or hearing more from you, where do they where do they look? Oh, you can just Google Brian Zond. I think I'm the only one out there. I'm easy enough to find. My my Z- blog site is Brian Zond. Yeah, Z A H N D. BrianZond.com, and then all of the sermons I preach are available at. Uh, WOLC.com, like Word of Life Church. But if you just Google Brian's on, you'll find kind of everything that's there, and it's not hard to find. And can find that's 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 the benefit of an unusual name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And your book is is most places where books are available, right? Right. Yes. All right. Well, thank you for for chatting with me today, and uh, certainly appreciate it. And you've challenged us. Thank you. I've enjoyed it, Jason. Thank you.